welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Schell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. I'm in a series on the Holy Spirit. Somebody counted, and I, this, I think is, this is number 14. And uh, my point was to, to, re, to relay a foundation in my own heart and, and uh, ours of the importance of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. What is it? What, who is the Holy Spirit? We've talked about that. Uh, what, has, what was the promise of the Father that Jesus referred to? Uh, what was different? I mean, is there something different after Jesus in our relationship with the Holy Spirit than before Jesus came? Uh, yes, there is. And that was the point of it all. And uh, so we've, we've seen that, been talking about it. And then we, we came and I, I wanted to deal with this section of scripture. It's chapters 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians. Why? This is the, this is the one place in, in the Bible where you really talk about how that early church functioned when they gathered. What happened when the church got together? Paul is talking to Corinth, and he's correcting and actually disciplining some things. But in the process, we hear and learn some deep lessons. How should the gathered people of God function? How does the Holy Spirit play in all of that? So that's what we're doing. We're going right down through that. We talked about verses what was it, uh, 4 through 11, and today we're going to start at verse 12, and we're going to read down to verse 27. And here Paul talks about the church as the body of Christ. He wants us to see ourselves as a people, not only filled individually with the Holy Spirit, but that when we gather and as a people, the Holy Spirit is among us. He is at work through us. We are not only individuals, we are a corporate people. We are the body of Christ, he will call us. That arms and ears and eyes and all of those things, we all have a different part to play. But together, in harmony, working together, Jesus as our head, we express Christ in this community. We're called. The Lord Lord shows himself, as it were, to this community through us. And so, Lord, would you open our ears and eyes? Would you soften our hearts? We have come to your word. We've come to you. We want you to teach us. You are life to us. I pray for the grace, Lord, to to speak your word and to to not be in the way. Lord, may this be your word and not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we go. 1 Corinthians 12, and I'll start at verse 12. For even as the body is one and and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Would you say baptized into one body? body. And then drink of one spirit. spirit. He goes on. But the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I'm not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? 
But now God has placed the members, look at this, each one of them, say each one of them, in the body just as he desired. Say just as he had desired. See that? There's a sovereign Lord at work among us, bringing us together, gifting us and calling us in certain ways and putting us together as a team. That's what he's saying. If all were one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. First of all, he started out, you notice, with, with, with the sense of in- inferiority. What I am and who I am really doesn't belong or really doesn't matter. He says, that's nonsense. Every part matters. And now he talks about pride, where I look down on others and say, you don't really matter. I don't need you. I'm fine. And people like me is all we need. And so he says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be and that word seemed to be supposed to be, uh, you suppose that they are, uh, you think they are, weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body which we think, we assume, are less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. Uh, I won't deal with it today, but that's a powerful point. Do you see it? That That we are to honor and go out of our way for those parts of the body which are overlooked. And those parts which get a lot of attention are to get less. So if there are maybe no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. That's our last verse. Would you read it out loud with me? Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Let's have a look at our text. We all come into the family of God with our thinking conditioned by a human culture that values certain kinds of people and devalues others. In this passage, Paul is telling the church in Corinth that we must actively work against the pride and shame that our old ways of thinking produce. That kind of, of, of judging people, of evaluating people, I consider it uh, a, a human sin, just like lust or anger or fear, the kinds of things that go through us, uh, that sort of prejudicial thing, that kind of judging of things. Every one of us feels that in every place in, in the, on the planet. It's not, it's not a particular group that has this problem. It is a deep human problem. We, we all do that because I think we, there's that self-love uh, that just says everybody who's not quite like me isn't quite as good. <laughs> you know, I'm the top of the peak, and the more you're like me, the better you are. There's just something in the human heart that tends to do that. Those who come from a favorable, in this case, this was a big deal for them at that time. Those who come from a favorable religious background must welcome those who don't. And I think particularly you're talking about, like in Corinth there, you've got Judaism, those who've come from Judaism, 
there they are. Oh, they've been leading these uh, careful moral lives. And then you've got people who've come from the worship of Aphrodite. You know, with a thousand prostitutes, males and females. And, and that was church for them. And so you've got these two groups coming together. And you can just imagine how, how, how the people from Judaism felt about the people from Aphrodite's group, you know, coming into the church. It was uh, interesting. But they must understand that in Christ, every believer, says Paul, holds equal status and enjoys the same privileges. Do you hear what he's telling us? Those who come from wealth or high social position must not separate themselves from those who are poor or come from difficult situations. And the reverse is also true. Those who come from humble backgrounds must not disqualify themselves because they're former religion or social status. Look, you've got, Paul says, not only do you have Jews and Greeks, he says you've got slaves and free. So you've got people there who are probably wealthy landowners, and then you've got, you've got slaves. Think of that. People who are slaves. How would you feel coming into church and you're a slave? You would sit in a corner and think, I got nothing to say here. I'm a slave. Just thank you for letting me in the door. You know, that kind of thing. Paul's working against that too. He's saying, stop it. Stop it. Stop it. God doesn't look at your social stuff. He cares nothing about it. He looks at you. They must not compare themselves to others and decide that they are not needed. Paul says that the Lord wants all believers to think of themselves as members of a team which is every, in which every person's contribution is important. And to illustrate that, he compares the church to a human body in which every part is necessary and belongs to the whole. But as Paul continues this teaching, we discover that the attitude that values certain kinds of people and devalues others doesn't stop at religious backgrounds or social position. If left unchecked, it will also look down on people who minister differently than we do. It forgets that Jesus calls people to a wide variety of ministries in his church so that a diverse range of needs can be met. Paul tells them that this diversity of ministry should be welcomed, not rejected. Nor should anyone reject the way God has designed them, nor envy others. The church that Jesus draws together will always be made up of many different kinds of people, with many different kinds of ministries. And in that church, there is to be no hierarchy of value. Say, no hierarchy. Every person, every ministry is important. And everything about our culture and our human nature is to put things in a hierarchy. This is important, this isn't. You're important, you're not. It's just, it's just endemic in our, in our very flesh. And it has to be worked against. It has to, you know, with, with this kind of, these kinds of things, you treat it just like any other temptation. You have, a, you have an angry thought, uh, what do you do with it? Well, you, you, you turn and focus on Christ. You rebuke the thing. You say, I'm not following that. No way I'm following that impulse. Uh, silence in the name of Jesus. You know, something on that order. That's how you deal with a temptation, isn't it? You just, you, 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 you just address it. Turn your mind on Christ. Hold it, you know, just stay focused on him. Let that thing let go. You do the same thing with prejudice. You do the same thing with, with this elitist thinking. When those thoughts come, when you find yourself demeaning somebody, driving down the street, you pass somebody who crosses your boundaries. 
And you, and you don't like, you know, you think, Pfft. right then you've just had a temptation. And that's when you stop and go, Lord, forgive me. I bless that person. They're made in your image. Be with them. Do you see it? We deal with prejudice. We deal with these attitudes the same way we deal with lust. The same way we deal with fear. It's just one more sin in the group of the flesh's sins. Paul builds this teaching not on his own opinion, but on an historical fact. He points to those to whom God had given the baptism with the Holy Spirit and says that by giving the Spirit to certain groups of people, God had proved his will concerning his church. Here's how he said that. Would you read this out loud with me? This is my translation. For indeed, in one spirit, we were all baptized, immersed into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and all were given one spirit to drink. Isn't that a beautiful image? In effect, Paul is looking back over the history of the church, beginning with Pentecost, and noting that God had given the spirit to every ethnicity, religious background, or social standing. On the day of Pentecost, God brought into the church Jews from many different countries. Remember this? It, it, it was on the day of Pentecost, the power fell. And, and then how many? They were from Medes and Elamites and from Mesopotamia and Cappadocia and Pontus and Bithynia. All of these were gathered there listening. What are these things? They all heard and they all got baptized that day. So suddenly, from day one, from day one, we got people from all over the entire region who are part of the church of Jesus Christ. When Philip went to Samaria, he brought in Samaritans. Boy, talk about crossing Jewish prejudices. They hate the Samaritans, Samaritans hate them. And so he goes up, Philip goes up there and people are turning to Christ in droves, but they're not getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. So Peter and John come from Jerusalem and lay their hands on these people and they get baptized in the Holy Spirit and, and our, you know they're speaking in tongues in the whole bit. Now you've got Samaritans in the church. Whoa. And then Peter went to Caesarea. And he brought in Romans. Remember this? This is a very important story in this. Well, this Roman centurion, he's a centurion over a, a, an Italian cohort. Uh, meaning he's, it's, a, it's a group of elite soldiers from Italy who are there to guard the governor. So this is a high, trusted, powerful, ranking kind of group. This is not just your run-of-the-mill whoever fights in the battles. This is an elite group of soldiers. And so here's uh, Cornelius, and, and he has decided to worship the God of Israel. He sees the beauty of this, of, of the, and cleanliness of this God compared to the garbage that he came from. He says, I'm going with that one. And he's been praying. He's been giving to the poor. He's been, he's been fasting and seeking God. And the Lord shows up and says to him, I want, there's a guy down in Joppa, 30 miles south of here. Send your men down. Bring him back. He's got something to tell you. So he sends him down. Here's Peter on, on a rooftop <laughs> with a, with a, in a tanner's house in, in Joppa. And he goes with the men, comes back to this group. The whole family, probably a bunch of soldiers and others who are trusted, are all in this room, this house, waiting for... In fact, when he gets there, Cornelius tries to worship him. He says, no, stop that. That's not okay. And then Peter comes in and begins to preach. And Peter's not even finished with his sermon. I mean, come on, that, that touches the heart. Uh, <laughs> he's not even come to his final point 
You know, he's, he's in the middle of his sermon. He's just explained Christ. And these people are all believing him, you know, as he goes. And, and, and he's not even done. And the power of the Holy Spirit falls. And the whole bunch of them is baptized in the Holy Spirit and begins to speak in tongues. I mean, what are you going to do? And, and, and so Peter, there he is. And he says, uh, well, let's baptize him, I guess. And so you baptize a whole bunch of Italians. And now you've got Italians in your church. Or pre-Italians. Uh, and the word gets back to Jerusalem. That we've got Romans who are coming to church. Now, here's the issue. It's an issue. It's an issue. Because we've got Jewish believers. And they're all keeping kosher. They're not mixing milk and meat. They're... <laughs> They're not drinking blood. You know, they're not doing any of that stuff, boy. And then here show up a bunch of Italians. Now, what are you going to do at the potluck dinner? <laughs> Somebody brought blood soup, you know. Oh, you know, people are going, oh, oh. Uh, and you're having to, you, you, you're not supposed to touch anything dead. And who knows what the person next to you, sitting in the seat next to you, has touched. That word gets back to Jerusalem, and they're not up in arms. They're really angry. I don't, I don't know if they're angry that they became sort of believers, whatever, but this baptizing thing, that Peter baptized them, that, in, in other words, welcomed them into the church. That's not okay. So they call Peter. And I think this is James, the Lord's brother. He's a pretty tough guy. Uh, he, and, he and some of the others, they, they call Peter in and go, like, what'd you do? And Peter says, here's his defense, not my fault. What are you going to do? He said, God gave them the same gift of the Spirit that he gave us. It's not my fault. He baptized them in the Holy Spirit. What are you going to do? I didn't pick them. He did. Now, that's the point. You see it? That's Paul's point. That's the point. When Paul makes that statement, that's what he's saying. He said, the Holy Spirit baptized into the church Jews and Greeks, slaves and free. The Holy Spirit has shown us the will of God. He's shown us who God welcomes into his church. It's just what Peter was telling him. I didn't bring him in. He did. All I, I had to baptize him. He'd already baptized him in the Holy Spirit. When Paul went on his missionary journeys, there he am, he brought in Gentiles of all sorts. And when Paul came to Corinth, most of those who flooded into the church were uneducated, poor, and had no social position at all. He says so. Yet one thing they did have. In addition to their faith in Jesus Christ. Was the powerful arrival of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit by baptizing them. By filling their innermost being with rivers of living water. Had proven who it was that God welcomed into the church. It had been Jesus, pardon me, Jews and Greeks. It had been slaves and free. It had been men and women. It had been young and old. It had been barbarians and Scythians. I think Scythians are up there in Russia, uh, that area. These are, these are the wild, you know, tribal people. Who knows what they're doing? Yeah. You imagine he baptized a Scythian. Guy probably got a huge beard and, you know, helmet or something. And the guy's baptized in the Holy Spirit and praying in tongues. What are you going to do? Yeah. The same Holy Spirit was dwelling in 
all of them. Say that. The same Holy Spirit was dwelling in all of them. That's the point. It is important to note that when Paul says that the baptism of the Holy Spirit proves that God accepts a wide variety of people into the church, that he is not pointing to something that is a theological truth. He is pointing to a recognizable reality. In the early church, the power of the Holy Spirit was so strong, people were receiving easily. And what they received was observable. Something obviously happened when they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. I quote Gordon Fee. He's a good scholar and he's a Pentecostal scholar. There's a reference there if you want to look at this. It was because the churches in Galatia had received an experiential and visibly manifest reception of the Spirit, Spirit, says Fee, that Paul could argue that his gospel of grace had proved to be true. I'm going to read this in a second, but look at Paul is able to, to write to the Galatians. And the Galatians are having a, 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 a real problem. Here's the problem. Paul had gone through Galatia, which is central Turkey. And Lystra and, and, uh, and Pisidian Antioch and whatever. And these, these cities. He'd gone through and he'd evangelized. He'd raised the churches up. He'd got them well established in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're all baptized in the Holy Spirit, all this stuff. And then he left... But people from Jerusalem had come up and tried to talk his people into becoming Jews, as well as Christians. And here was the problem. Right back to what we talked about earlier. In Jerusalem, the Christians in Jerusalem are suffering. And one of the main reasons they're suffering is the word is coming back that Jews in other cities, in Galatia and wherever else this Paul has gone, they are fellowshipping with Gentiles. And so the Jews in, in, in uh, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are under real attack. Because this, they're, they're furious. The Jews are furious that, 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 you, would, that you would eat with or touch uh, these Gentiles. And so they have sent people from Jerusalem up trying to get the people in Galatia to get the men to get circumcised. Uh, let's... let's you know, separate milk and meat, let's not cut our beards. You know, the, the, the whole bit, they're trying to get them to act, act, act kosher so that they, the pressure they're under, Paul says this, I'm not making this up, so that, the, so that the, the pressure they're under will be relieved. It's a very selfish thing in a way. But they're sending evangelists to, to change Paul's converts uh, so that they, the heat comes off them and they can say, no, we are not fellowshipping with Gentiles. These are, these are proselytes, they're convert, converts. Uh, to Judaism. So that's the pressure. The whole thing about circumcision. So Paul writes this. You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Watch this. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law? Or by hearing with faith. So then does he who provides you with the spirit. And works miracles among you. Do it by works of the law. Or by hearing with faith. Paul can point to something. Of this baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is so real. 
so tangible, so observable. He can point to it and say, how did that happen to you? When the power hit you, was it because you'd been separating milk and meat and got cutting your beard? And going to church on a certain day. Were you keeping the law? Or did I come along, preach the gospel to you? Jesus Christ crucified. You went, uh-huh, I believe. And power came on you. Which was it? And they had to say, well, you preached and we went, uh-huh, we believe. And, and we got it. Saying, then God has accepted you. Don't you dare let them put you out. And make you try to come back in through the law. You find that? Look, people, there's a trend right now. Uh, Christianity's struggling. It's, got, it's become so soft in its theology, so weak in what it believes, that people are attracted to Judaism. And I understand Judaism right now is in a resurgence. Uh, Israel's going, it's, it's great things that are going on over there. And there are people going, well, I'm just going to want to be Jewish again. What Paul said to them, what he would say to you and to me, how did you receive the Spirit? Look, people, you either trust Christ as your righteousness or you think you can separate milk and meat, not work on the Sabbath, not shave your beard, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and go down the line and earn your righteousness. Are you going to earn it or are you going to give it, receive it as a gift? I'm going to just tell you, I think it's crazy. Knowing me, no way could I earn my own righteousness. I'm a mess. I need grace. And if you need grace, you need Jesus. If you need the mercy of God, you need Jesus. You don't need the law. Doesn't mean we don't value the Old Testament. Doesn't mean we don't learn. Doesn't mean we don't get, we aren't taught constantly by the values and the, and the prophecies. I love the, I live in the Old Testament. But he's my savior. And he's my righteousness. He was able to point to their common experience of receiving the spirit. As proof that God agreed with the gospel he had preached to them. So it's God who decides who belongs in the church, not us. And Paul tells the Corinthians that we need only to look at those he's baptized with the Holy Spirit to discover what a wide variety of people that is. But in saying that, we need to insert a note of caution. Paul never meant to say that people who have not had a dramatic baptism of the Holy Spirit or don't speak with tongues are not full members of the Lord's church. He would have been shocked that we even asked him that question and would have quickly reminded us that it is by faith alone that a person becomes part of God's family. But when God, Paul wrote those statements, the early church was not arguing, listen to this, in those, in those days, the early church was not arguing over the nature of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We are now. They weren't then. If you had not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, in effect, you were in evangelical. Peter and John came down, laid hands on you, and turned you into a Pentecostal. Now, it's just true. It's just true. The entire New Testament are Pentecostal Christians. There was no non-Pentecostal Christianity. That came later. So they didn't have this argument. They understood it to be the will of God. Everyone assumed that what happened at Pentecost was still available. And the church deliberately helped people receive the gift of the Spirit that they had been given when they believed. Deliberately helped people. So it was a normal part of their experience. If we today will again recognize the importance of receiving what we have been given... The same life of the Spirit that we read about in Corinth or in Galatia 
will become a common observable reality among us as well. It's been so important, and I, I've, it's come to me uh, with a deep understanding as we've been going through this series, just the, the, and, and through the Gospel of John, frankly. There is a divine side to this equation and a human side. God gives the Spirit. When you say, Jesus Christ, you died for me, I believe in you, I trust your cross, I bow my knee to you and submit to you as my Lord and my Savior. When you submit and you and repent, when you believe in him and trust him alone, you are righteous completely by faith. Do you follow that? You're on your way to heaven and everything God has is given to you right then. Right then. That's what God gives. But there's a human side of the equation as well. Have I received Everything God gave me. And so he, may, he says, I, pour, I baptize you with the Spirit. I pour out the Spirit. There's nothing now. You are righteous. Here, here, have everything. Have Christ. And then we need to receive that. And we need to step into that. And it's as a human side. So he pours out, we drink. He exhales, we inhale. <gasps> there's, there's our side of the equation. I'm saying it fast. You following me? This has been the issue. It's... It's, it's not a matter of two experiences. It's a matter of receiving what he's given us at the one experience. The great family that Jesus has redeemed is very diverse. It's made up of many different types of people who have been called to function in many different ways. This diversity is not an accident. It is intentional. In order for the church to perform the full range of ministries that Jesus desires to do in a particular community. He gives different people different assignments. And then asks them to support each other and work together in harmony. When that happens, the family of believers, that church in that location can be compared to a human body. Just as our bodies have Different organs that are designed to do different functions. Some will be called to lead, others to follow. Some will do ministries that by their nature draw attention to the person doing it. Others will work behind the scenes and can therefore be overlooked. That's why Paul says we must be diligent to view these various ministries the way God sees them. Like different organs of the human body. Everyone is needed. Say everyone is needed. Each one performs a vital function. Say that. Each one provides a vital function. If any member were missing, that body would be hindered in its activity or unable to survive. In effect, Jesus wants to walk in our community again. He wants to, he, that was his whole, his whole plan, was I will ascend to heaven, pour out the spirit on you, you is my physical body on earth, I, as the head of the body, will lead you. You will then function as I have been functioning. I only do what I see the Father do. I only speak what I hear the Father speak. You will lead, follow, draw on the power of the Spirit. And then you will now go into the community, and the community will see me. The community sees Jesus through our corporateness, I would say more when it's done properly, than our individualness. Now, he should see Christ. The community should see Christ in every one of us. The love of the Lord in our eyes and the way we talk and the way we function. But there's a fullness of Christ, you see, 
when everybody's working together. You see young and old, old you know, you see, you see rich and poor, you see every ethnicity, you see all these social backgrounds suddenly loving each other and working side by side and arm in arm. You see them caring for the poor and feeding the hungry. You see them praying for the sick. You see, you see them uh, speaking up uh, for, for justice. You, you see all of this going on through this great community of people. And there's something, you look at it and you don't go, isn't that person great? Isn't that? You go, that's Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is here. Jesus has come among us. Through his people, he's walking through our, our community. That's the goal. And it's a beautiful one. And I would say to a measure, it's, it's happening, wouldn't you? In this passage, Paul is teaching us to think a certain way when we consider the Lord's church. He wants us to celebrate the diversity God sends, not reject it. No one should feel inferior or think of others as inferior. He wants us to see ourselves as part of a team and understand our role as part of that team. God recognizing the call. Paul closes this section with this summary statement. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. His point is unmistakable. Each of us has a role to play in the work Jesus wants to do in our community. Not only does the Holy Spirit care for each of us, but the Lord Jesus also calls each of us to minister on his behalf. And as Paul has shown us so clearly in this passage, all of us are needed. And all of us will be given different assignments. But the question that arises in, in many of us after listening to him is this. How do I know what I'm called to do? What is my place in his body? Am I a hand or a foot, an ear or an eye? How will I know? And of course, there are, is all sorts of answers that have been given to that question. But I think the first step toward the answer is very simple. I believe that if each of us will look within our heart and reflect on where God has given us a special compassion, we will be headed in the right direction. As Paul will teach us in the next chapter, the Lord always leads us by love. He guides us by love, not by ambition or guilt. Yes, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are told to love all people. But no one can minister to all people. Each of us is only capable of being one part of the body. So it seems the Lord places a very specific compassion for a very specific area of human need inside each of us. Now I'm going to read that line again. That's key. It seems the Lord places a very specific compassion for a very specific area of human need inside each of us. Certain kinds of needs will catch our eye. Certain types of suffering will persistently disturb us. Certain problems will cause us to wonder why someone isn't doing something about that. And it's likely that we had felt those feelings over the course of our lifetime. If we look back on our history, we will soon recognize a pattern of concern. Whenever we encounter that, that need, we felt the impulse to help. God guides us 
by love. It's really important because if you left to ourselves, what we guide ourselves by is fear or ambition. You'll find when, when you're in uh, the flesh, uh, you're afraid of things or you're angry. And the decisions you make are, I'm going to push that person out of my life and shut the door on that and I'm tired of this stuff and I'm out of here. You know, you have those kinds of things. That's when you are in the flesh. It's very dangerous to make decisions <laughs> in that condition. You'll find that when you're in the spirit, when the Lord's presence is strong, when you're close to him, it's almost like your entire world turns over. I would say right side up. It's like you're sane for a moment. And suddenly, you feel very differently about people and about life and about yourself. You feel loved. You feel the purpose of God. You feel his, his, by faith, you know he can handle all sorts of things. You're not afraid. You're not angry. And you feel drawn. There'll be a love that draws you. When you're in that condition, listen to your heart. That's when God's guiding you. That's the important. So as, guidance has as much to do with you and your condition as, as getting God to talk. It isn't like he's not talking. But when we're in the flesh, we can't hear. Because our fears and our angers and our confusion and our, our, our own thoughts are so loud, we can't hear a voice. That's what's going on. So press in, worship in, worship into the presence. And, then in, and in that place, suddenly you'll find, you'll find that love there. Let me illustrate it. I really believe that God has given each of us a, a, a particular area where he's called us. Now let me tell you, calling isn't what you're supposed to do. It isn't about your aptitudes. Uh, often when we're trying to figure out our call, we, we have, these, they have these tests and stuff like, what do you like to do? Like, I, I have found God could care less what I like to do. Um, and it, Honestly, I'm, I'm just going to be, it's just ridiculous. He doesn't care what you like to do. That isn't the point at all. It's very different for God. It's not about what do you like to do. It's what has he given you to do. Calling, listen, this is very important. Calling is not about what you do. It's about to whom are you called. Calling is about people. And God will put on your heart a compassion for people particular people in particular need. He will show you a need. Something will cross your heart and you'll see it and it will disturb you. It'll draw you. And every time you encounter it, it will, it'll, it'll, it'll rest, ruffle you. And you'll think to yourself, why isn't someone doing something about this? Can't we see what's going on? Well, no. We don't have the same call. You do. He's calling you. not. So when that awakens... Then you're beginning to, you're on track. This is where the Lord's lead you. Let me tell you mine, because I, I know mine. Um, and it's been with me since I was a boy. And, and so has your, yours has been with you since you were young. You'll, you'll find that God literally puts those things and forms in this, even when we were young. It's been a pattern in your life. And, and so I, when, I, when I look, for me, I... In a sense, I wish it was for the, for, the, for, the, for the lost of the world. I do deeply care for salvation. I long for people to be saved. Don't get me wrong. But my compassion, believe it or not, is for, for Christians. And it's for, for believers in the church who don't know who they are, who don't know the Bible, 
who, who are struggling and hurting and don't know the, the resources that are there. I, I long to see Christians fed and strengthened so that they can rise up and serve the Lord. So even think about it. As the pastor of the church, the way everything's structured in this church is built around my compassion. Everything we do is about getting the congregation into ministry, not doing it for them. You lead us in worship. We have some people training and working with that, but it's our congregation up here that's leading us in worship. I don't hire a professional band. A lot of churches do. I refuse to. I want us. I want you who are called to do worship ministry. I want you rising up in your calling. How do we do missions? You don't just send me somewhere and I take photographs of myself, you know. Here I am, everybody. Look at that, you know. And preaching for thousands. That's missions in an awful lot of churches. In our church, you, you have to go through general mission training and then specific mission training. And we put you through all this, but then we send you as trained missionaries all over the world. And people are standing in line asking us to come. Because you, that's why you, I, every so often I'll have you stand up here, you know, and when we're praying you out like we did. And I remember, I think it was last week, I said, look at them. What do they look like? That's what missionaries look like. They look like you. And it's because I know that a number of the congregation, a, a sizable percentage, will always have been called to missions. I literally believe that. And here's what I think. I think you and I are all going to stand before Jesus. And I think we're, he's going to say, what have you done with what I gave you? I mean, that's what he says he'll say. So I believe him. And if I feel as a pastor, it's, it's important for me to open every possible door so that you can find your calling and you can serve the Lord. You're not earning your salvation, but you are fulfilling who you've been made and called to be by the God of heaven. And it's important that I do that. Our worship, our missions, our, uh, you, you, our, everything we do, our children's ministry. I've had people say, why don't you hire teachers? My foot, I'll hire teachers. If we can't care for our own young, we ought to shut this thing down. We will teach our own children. We'll train our people. We'll raise them up. But no way I'm hiring a bunch of hirelings to come in and sit with my kids. That's nonsense. Do you see it? We, my job, is for, to, to just make it absolutely possible for all of us to rise up in the calling and the maturity that Jesus has for us. That burns in me. I don't do this because I like it. If it, if, it, if it was a, you don't have any idea of the weight of this all and the pressure of this. How would you like to write basically a term paper a week? Sometimes too, when I was doing daily Bible studies, how would you like to do that? Every single week. And it doesn't let up. Boom, boom, boom. The drumbeat of the weekends. <laughs> I'm fried on Monday, and then I'm back to work. I, and I don't do that because I'm nice, and I don't do that because I need a salary. Because frankly, I don't. I do that because this love constrains me. Love for you, love for the calling that's on you, love for the Jesus who loves you. And longs to see. Love for and then knowing this, that as the laborers are released. The harvest comes in. The lost are found. The broken are healed. 
And then you look at the multitude of ministries in this church. The pastoral care that's done by us. Over 50% of the pastoral care done by the congregation, not by hired pastors. That's the way it should be. That's the way it should be, in my opinion. Because that's my call. That's all I can see. (laughs) It's what's in me. What's in you? What's yours? You have one too. I guarantee you have one. God has put it there. He's wound it into you. He formed it into you and he made you as a baby. You have in you an eyes that see certain needs. You have in you a compassion that longs for some. Let me show you this example. Jesus gives us this beautiful example of compassion. The Lord Jesus taught a parable that shows us someone who ministered to someone in need because they felt compassion. Listen to what he said about the good Samaritan. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. Remember, a couple of people had passed by. And when he saw this man wounded by the roadside, he felt compassion. Say compassion. And he came to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Two other travelers passed by this wounded man, but it was the Samaritan who stopped to help him because he felt compassion. And he not only helped the man in the moment, his compassion caused him to care for the man until he was well. That's crazy. He paid money. He kept funding the innkeeper till the man was fully well. Jesus concluded the story by saying the Samaritan had loved his neighbor as himself. That makes the answer to our question very simple. I simply need to find my compassion and identify my neighbor. And I will be well on my way to taking my place in the body of Christ. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.